ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, as we shift from coal to renewables, could nuclear power help keep the lights on amid growing strains on our energy grid? Would you eat lab-based meat grown from animal cells? It's getting closer to the real thing. We take a biopsy of the mammal or we take it from an egg of a fish or a bird. We isolate the ones we want. Then we feed those cells the same thing they're getting fed and we turn them into delicious products for people to eat. And Australians say goodbye to a comedy legend. Farewell to Barry Humphreys. Thanks for your company. Australia's energy transition to renewables is moving at a record pace. But there are warnings the nation's main power grid could struggle to reliably keep the lights on if more isn't done. That's according to the Australian Energy Market Operator, which today released a draft plan to achieve the transition in order to meet the federal government's emissions reduction targets. Matt Bamford reports. In the New South Wales town of Tibberborough, 300 kilometres from Broken Hill, John Ainsworth is watching temperatures tick towards 40 degrees. We've already had some days where it's been up 42, 43, and we expect it to get hotter even... um, January. It's known as one of the hottest towns in the state and right now John Ainsworth is able to escape the heat with the help of a cold beer but due to frequent blackouts that's not always possible. Oh yeah yeah reasonably regular we've had up to five days here with without power. So what do people do to cope? Well a lot of them the, the businesses up here they've got their own big generator they can run their whole business off off their big generators. But, but the rest of us, we've got little generators, you know, just run our, gener- our uh, refrigerators and, and freezers and all that sort of thing. Not necessarily um, uh, air conditioners because they can drag a bit too much. It's a growing problem as Australia's coal-reliant power grid attempts a renewable energy transition. This week, with temperatures in New South Wales topping 43 degrees, residents were asked to reduce their energy use at peak times to ease the strain. Today, the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AEMO, released its draft plan to achieving the shift. Daniel Westerman is the Chief Executive of AEMO. Our coal-fired power stations are are getting old and they're retiring, and we expect about 90% of those coal-fired power stations to retire in the next decade. The report says the transition is well underway and breaking renewable generation records. But there's a mountain of work to do to meet the federal government's 43% emissions reductions target by 2030 and net zero by 2050. It calls for triple the grid-scale renewable energy by 2030 and an increase of sevenfold by 2050. It calls for uh, almost four times what we call the firming capacity. So that's generation that can respond when you need it, um, including batteries and pumped hydro and, and gas generation and four times the rooftop solar and about 10,000 kilometres of that um, of new transmission by 2050. Tim Buckley is Director of Think Tank Climate Energy Finance. He says the uptake of rooftop solar is a sign the demand is there. Consumers are taking it into their, uh, into their own hands. So we've seen this year a record high installation of rooftop solar. It's up 
10, 12% year on year. It's going to be a record. Uh, 3.2 gigawatts of rooftop solar installed just in the last 12 months. But it's just one piece of the puzzle. The report also says gas generation will need to increase to support the grid during peak times. Gas is um, it's problematic, but will it have a role in the grid? Yes, you can't get off fossil fuels overnight. The other big challenge is building enough infrastructure in the right places. Tony Wood is the Program Director for Energy and Climate Change at the Grattan Institute. While we, for the last 20 years, have been building a lot of renewable energy, we've been building it in places where we already had a transmission grid to connect to. We've now pretty well exhausted all that capacity and now we're building renewable energy in more more distant regional areas and that means we've got to build a lot of transmission to get that energy into um, the major cities. And there's been some unexpected hurdles. So we're seeing a lot more community pushback than I think governments expected or the, and the operators of these uh, transmission businesses expected. Mm. At the same time, as the ISP warns, the cost of doing all these transmission links has gone up 30%. Tony Wood says it's a sign of a more difficult road ahead to complete the transition. There's a lot of really nasty problems here and they're not things that governments can fix easily and certainly not one that the Commonwealth government by itself can fix. It needs state governments, local governments, working with people on the ground. This is something we can, we can do and get on with it. And if we do get on with it, we can meet emissions reduction targets. Another reminder of the looming challenges, today the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission reported Victoria will need gas shipped from the other eastern states to avert shortfalls next winter. Matt Bamford reporting there. Well, the AEMO report makes clear as coal power phases out, we need more dispatchable power in the mix, that is, energy that can be turned on when renewables aren't doing the job. Batteries don't last that long and gas pumps more carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Pumped hydro clearly isn't a silver bullet either. So what about nuclear power? Simon Holmes-Accord is a director of the Smart Energy Council and the convener of Climate 200. He recently attended the COP28 climate conference. The draft 2024 report by AMO today finds that 90% of our coal is expected to leave the grid by 2035, with all of it gone by 2038. Now, the awkward thing for nuclear, as well as playing a significant role in other countries, there's really no conceivable way that we could get nuclear into our grid in time for that coal shutdown. If we were to start, say, in 2025 with a process to go down the nuclear track like the United Arab Emirates did, where the COP was recently held, if all goes well and if there was no serious opposition, we could see the first unit come into the grid in uh, the early 2040s. Uh, but that's long after we need that energy. You, as you mentioned, just got back from the COP28 climate summit where nuclear energy was actually mentioned in the agreement for the first time. Just outline for us why the mood has seemingly shifted globally on nuclear, albeit rather incrementally. There was a, um, a nuclear side event at COP held by the World Nuclear Association and there was a, a level of excitement that it's now become something you can say in polite company. <laughs> I think they've previously felt that they were not welcome at these conferences. And the final communication does mention nuclear as one of the net zero technologies that could help us. So uh, if you're a nuclear advocate, I think you can be buoyed a little bit, especially by this announcement that uh, is it 22 countries have signed on to a pledge to triple nuclear by 2050. But to put it in context, there was a significant pledge in the official process, not a side event, but official process, to triple renewables by 2030, so two, two decades earlier. Mm, yeah, because when you look at that list of countries, 
the US, the UK, Canada, Finland, Sweden, Japan, South Korea, the Netherlands, to name a few. These are modern, many of them progressive nations that is, I guess, leading some to ask, you know, should we be on that list? Well, most of the countries in that in that list have existing nuclear supply chains, have reactors in the ground and have government support for, for nuclear. We're not, we're not in that position right now. It's unfortunately, for in Australia, nuclear has become quite a politicised energy source. Both major parties think that their position is electorally popular, so I don't think either are going to change their opinion anytime soon. You mentioned the politics there. Labor is fiercely opposed to the idea of nuclear power. The coalition in in some ways sees it as as the the silver bullet, the the answer that we're looking for. What is it, do you think, about the politics of nuclear in this country that has blocked, I I guess, a a more reasonable conversation for for so long? Well, I think there is a certain segment of Australia, and it's not not small, who are staunchly anti-nuclear and it's generally older Australians who uh, have a deep or strong connection between nuclear weapons and nuclear power. What what worries me is that the coalition is cynically grabbing on to nuclear as a way of opposing Labor's policies and what we saw from AEMO today is their, their plan to keep the lights on has us building renewables at a faster rate than we are right now but steadily building them up to in their plan 83% renewables by 2030, slightly ahead of Labor's target. And we heard last week, we heard Ted O'Brien very clearly say that he opposed Labor's renewable target. So we now have a situation where the grid operator's plan, the least cost plan, the plan that keeps the lights on, is opposed. And unfortunately, I think it's um, significant amounts of ideology on both sides. Do you fear another sort of launch into the abyss of of climate wars? There have been many premature headlines that the climate wars are over. I think while this issue is on the table, I, I fear we're up for another five years or so of arguing about the role of nuclear in the grid. And I think any clear-eyed look at it can see that there's no role for nuclear in this current energy transition, but we should be open-minded to nuclear in the 2040s, certainly keep an eye on what countries whose values we identify with, um, what they manage to achieve over the next decade or so, watch very closely, but try to keep ideology out of these discussions. That's Simon Holmes, a court from the Smart Energy Council there. To the defamation trial launched by former Liberal Party staffer Bruce Lehrman now and Network 10 journalist Lisa Wilkinson has denied she lacked objectivity when reporting on Brittany Higgins's allegation that she'd been raped by Mr Lehrman in Parliament House. Mr Lehrman is suing both Ms Wilkinson and Network 10 for defamation after a story on the Project TV program aired the allegation. Mr Lehrman strongly denies the allegation and his criminal trial was aborted because of juror misconduct. No findings have been made against him. Samantha Donovan is following the defamation case in the federal court in Sydney. So, Sam, what was raised about Lisa Wilkinson's objectivity? Well, David, Ms Wilkinson was challenged on a message she'd sent to a producer of the project where she said, watching Question Time, Penny Wong magnificent, Linda Reynolds lying through her teeth. And the court heard this was a message sent on the day the Brittany Higgins allegations were first reported by the media in 2021 and the matter was raised in the Senate. Stephen Richardson, SC, Mr Lehrman's barrister, 
Foster put to Ms Wilkinson that that was further proof she was always going to believe Brittany Higgins' account of how the matter was handled rather than that of Ms Higgins' former boss, Senator Linda Reynolds. And it was further proof she couldn't be objective when it came to assessing uh, Senator Reynolds' role in this matter. Ms Wilkinson told the court that Senator Reynolds had lied to the Senate. That was her belief when the Senator said she hadn't been aware of the details of the incident that had allegedly happened in her office. Ms Wilkinson denied that message was proof she couldn't be objective. The judge, Michael Lee, then asked her what information she had at the time of that message to suggest Senator Reynolds was lying and Ms Wilkinson gave evidence she didn't recall but she told the court it might have been from the interviews with Brittany Higgins or, or phone calls and she told the court Ms Higgins had always mentioned and maintained that Senator Reynolds knew early on there'd been a sexual element to what had allegedly happened in her office. Now, Lisa Wilkinson was also asked questions about her connection to Brittany Higgins's partner. Yes, this matter was actually raised by the judge, Justice Michael Lee, and he quizzed Ms Wilkinson on how well she knows Brittany Higgins' partner, David Shiraz. Uh, Ms Wilkinson told the court he wasn't a good friend. Justice Lee referred her to a, a message that Ms Wilkinson had received from Mr Shiraz where he signed off much love. Uh, Ms Wilkinson told the court she agreed that was odd as she didn't know him well. Uh, Justice Lee also asked her if it was a good idea to have had Mr Shiraz as the, the conduit, the, the contact between the project and Ms Higgins for much of the time the program was being put together and Ms Wilkinson gave evidence she would have preferred it had been Brittany Higgins herself as the main contact. Concerns have also been raised about how the project TV program handled the government's response to the allegations. Yes, one of the issues uh, Mr Lehrman's barrister Stephen Richardson challenged Ms Wilkinson on was the fact the project aired Brittany Higgins' allegation that Senator Macalia Cash, who employed Ms Higgins after she left Senator Reynolds' office, had said to her she was, quote, just sort of going to have to suck it up when it came to, to going through the security checkpoints at Parliament House, which Brittany Higgins has told the project she found challenging given what she alleged had happened on that night. Uh, the court heard that Senator Cash wasn't told that those those exact words when she was asked for a response. She was asked for a, given details of sort of more generic or general statements made by Ms Higgins. Now, Mr Richardson put to Lisa Wilkinson that the, the comments, you're going to have to suck it up, made Senator Cash sound like a cartoonish villain. Ms Wilkinson told the court that she may have suggested the exact words were put to Senator Cash to respond to, but the, the producers hadn't done that. Uh, Mr Richardson also challenged her on the fact the project said in its broadcast that everyone named in the program had been asked for an interview when, in fact, Senator Cash hadn't been. Uh, Ms Wilkinson gave evidence she genuinely thought everyone named had been asked for an interview. Mr Richardson also raised with her the fact the program reported no one had checked on Brittany Higgins in the ministerial suite overnight when in fact Brittany Higgins had actually told them a security guard had called out and asked her if she was okay and she had said she was fine. Mr Richardson put to Lisa Wilkinson that that was very poor journalism. Ms Wilkinson told the court she was disappointed to see that omission and it was a detail that had escaped her attention. Samantha Donovan there. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. 
Well, the spike in anti-Semitism since the October 7 Hamas attacks in Israel is worse than we thought. The Executive Council of Australian Jewry says the number of reported anti-Semitic incidents is 700% higher than the same period last year. David Sparks has more. Since the Gaza-Israel war broke out, Jewish leaders in Australia say they've been facing more and more abuse. Now they're releasing data to back that up. CEO of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, Alex Rivchen, says it's coming in different forms. We're seeing vandalism of Jewish businesses, organised boycotts of Jewish businesses, harassment of Jewish schoolchildren, physical assaults, abuse in the streets, online death threats, bomb threats directed at Jewish institutions, the whole realm of anti-Semitic incidents we're seeing. And it's leading to a lot of anxiety in the community and a lot of difficult conversations in the community. He says it's affecting the way Jewish people live in Australia. You know, parents are speaking to their children about not disclosing their Jewishness in public, about hiding Jewish attire and Jewish symbols, about perhaps not wearing Jewish school uniforms. The Executive Council of Australian Jewry has released statistics which it says trace the number of anti-Semitic incidents reported to it and to its affiliate organisations. It logged 662 incidents in October and November, compared with just 79 incidents in the same two months last year. The Council's President, Gillian Siegel, says it's deeply concerning and action is needed. I really call on governments, both state and federal, to show leadership in this regard and adopt a national anti-Semitism education campaign around the country. Because we really believe that such an education campaign in schools could counter disinformation, could counter the myths, could counter the um, un unknowns that people are just reacting to. Other organisations have also noted an increase in race-related incidents since the war broke out. Anti-discrimination New South Wales says it's seen an increase in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. That's based on inquiries and complaints it receives. The Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission says it's received anecdotal reports of a rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. The Federal Minister for Immigration and Multicultural Affairs, Andrew Giles, provided a statement saying there is no place for anti-Semitism in Australia. The government has committed $25 million to the Executive Council of Australian Jewry to be spent on improving safety measures in Jewish schools and other settings. David Sparks there. The opening of the Northern Territory's first cotton processing plant today is being touted as an important step toward developing the North. But as Jane Barden reports, there are some environmental concerns. The heavy weights of the cotton industry today raised their glasses to the NT's first processing plant in the regional town of Catherine. There'll be some uh, champagne flutes uh, brought around shortly. It's being built by a group of NT farmers who've been trialling growing cotton for five years. The owners hope this gin and another being built in Kununurra in WA will finally kickstart Northern Australia's development after many failed attempts to grow other crops like rice. David Connolly is the director of the farmers group called Want and manages Tipperary Station which is growing cotton. Next year uh, growers are looking to plant or we're planting now actually for 2024 about 15,000 hectares in the Northern Territory. So we're here and we're into it. 
BNT government wants to expand cotton crops to up to a thousand square kilometres within a decade. David Connolly again. Farmers have been crying out for a crop that they can grow, that they can sell on a world stage. The Gins building has been controversial with the Tarbury station hosting it, fined $7,000 for clearing the site before getting approval. The water needs of the crop has sparked most opposition, including from Catherine's Town Council. Indigenous traditional owners are worried it could damage major rivers, including the Roper and Daly. Mangarai community leader Rosina Farrell from Jilkmingan. We just hope they stop this using a lot of water. Environment groups are particularly worried because the NT government has changed the law to allow 5% of water to be harvested from floodplains and it plans to give out more water from aquifers. NT Environment Centre Director Kirsty Howie. We have a lot of concerns about this cotton gin opening because what it will make way for is the clearing of potentially tens of thousands of hectares of beautiful savannah woodland for cotton and, of course, the opening up of new forms of water extraction, including the construction of dams on our free-flowing rivers. The government is saying that before you could just take whatever you wanted, but now the overland flow take is reduced to 5%. What's your view of that? It's a signal to the industry that the water will now be available. What is the difference between having mangoes or melons or having cotton? Look, what we're seeing in the Northern Territory, cotton farmers from the Murray-Darling Basin buying up big here compared to the very small areas of land and comparably smaller amounts of water for industries like mangoes, you know, melons. David Connolly thinks land clearing concerns aren't valid. People won't be tearing down trees to plant cotton because we've already got our farmland. I mean, Tipperary, for instance, we've got oodles of farmland that we used to grow hay on. We're converting that land to cotton. And he says cotton irrigation won't damage rivers. Cotton doesn't kill rivers. We've tried to engage with people who have that opinion. They're just interested in talking about what a negative cotton is for the Northern Territory, when really cotton is a huge positive. It's building employment right across the industry. It's building supply chains. The NT Environment Minister Kate Warden provided a statement saying the government's water policies are conservative and will protect rivers and the agriculture sector makes an important contribution to the NT's regional communities. Jane Barden there. At this month's Global Climate Summit, COP28, Australia joined more than 130 countries in a pledge to reduce the environmental impact of food production. One approach that could make a difference is lab-grown or cultivated meat. Isabel Masali takes a look. Quail, a small bird, is a delicacy known for its rich flavour, but a very different type of quail might soon be available. Nicholas Chilton is with the Sydney alternative protein company, Val. Some marmy, heavy, meaty flavours, but that's usually accompanied by a really rich texture that makes it hard to eat more than a little bit of it. The way we do it, with the particular quail cell we've isolated, we get the same rich flavour, but we get this really light, fluffy, moorish texture. So we've been able to kind of create an impossible contradiction that doesn't exist when you just take it straight from a quail. And that's really exciting for chefs. Nicholas Chilton swears his products pass the taste test. The way it's made, though, might not sound as appetising. We take a biopsy of the uh, a mammal or we take it from an egg of a f- uh, fish or a bird. The cells that repair other cells, we isolate the ones we want, the ones that 
potentially might exhibit the things that are valuable about that species from a taste point of view or a nutritional point of view. And we grow those cells uh, and then we harvest them and we turn them into uh, delicious products for people to eat. But you'll have to take his word on the taste because it's yet to be tried by Australian customers. And that test could come soon. Bow is behind the first cell-cultured food application to be assessed by Food Standards Australia New Zealand. It's found no safety risks and it's just opened the first round of public consultation. For Sam Perkins from Cellular Agriculture Australia, it's an exciting tipping point. The not-for-profit covers the cultivated meat sector, a term preferred to lab-grown, which it says is inaccurate. We've already seen products regulated and for sale in Singapore and in the United States, and that's been a cultivated chicken product. Magic Valley, a company based in Australia, are already working on cultivated lamb and cultivated pork product. And so we believe within the Australian environment that VOW are very much leading the way, but are going to set a precedent for a range of other products to follow on through their regulatory journey. VOW says it's not trying to compete with existing markets of chicken, beef, pork and lamb. Other companies are trying, though. Deakin University Emeritus Professor Lee Ackland has studied the growth of cells in culture. She argues this approach is much faster than traditional farming and it's better for animals, the environment and food security. Because with the climate change, we're coming in for some hard times with our climate and with floods and fires and, and potential famines. So, and of course, everyone knows that we've seen some very unfortunate examples of cruelty in animals. It would be good not to have that situation occurring. And this will be, I mean, cultured meat is more safe than meat from an animal because it's being grown in sterile conditions. While it's close to being approved for Australian consumers, she says the issue is building the infrastructure to produce it on a large scale. Cost of the meat at the moment is probably at least double that of, of um, an, you know, a meat from an animal. The more the industry builds up, the cheaper it becomes. I'd imagine eventually that the cultured meat would uh, be cheaper than eating a meat from a, a killed animal. As for whether there's appetite for it, Let's ask Sam Perkins from Cellular Agriculture Australia. Well, I mean, in Australia, until you put something in front of them, it's difficult to tell. I mean, consumer sentiment certainly highlights there's a large proportion of people who are interested in trying. But I think the rubber is really going to hit the road once Fowl's application is complete. And I think that'll be the real test case. And he hopes that will come late next year. Isabel Masali there. Australia bid farewell to an entertainment legend today, Barry Humphreys, the creative genius behind Dame Edna Everidge and Sir Les Patterson, has been honoured at a state memorial service at the Sydney Opera House. Rachel Hayter has the highlights. <laughs> Australian entertainer Barry Humphreys dazzled audiences for seven decades. His fans were from all walks of life, including royalty. It almost sounds like a line from the show to say I have a message from the palace. The Federal Arts Minister Tony Burke read a note from His Majesty King Charles III at today's state memorial service at the Sydney Opera House. I suspect that all those who appeared on stage or on TV with Barry's Dame Edna, or who found her appearing at the back of the royal box, will have shared that unique sensation where fear and fun 
combine. They've found me a better seat. <laughs> Today's memorial was emceed by television presenter Richard Wilkins, who remembered Barry Humphrey's endless fascination with everyday people. This unrelenting curiosity that enabled him to forge the rich tapestry that he harnessed to entertain us and mirror us with. The eccentricities of Edna. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Dame Edna Experience with Dame Edna Everett. The vulgarity of Soles. I'm chairman of the Australian Cheese Board. <laughs> I was sitting on the cheese board only this afternoon, as a matter of fact. Reminiscing not just on the good times, but the tough times too. Although comic relief was never far away. Director Bruce Beresford spoke about Mr Humphrey's struggle with drinking in London in the 1960s. He knew he was first on stage after interval. He ran from a nearby pub and managed to reach the theatre just as the interval ended. He dashed into the wings and then onto the stage. The only problem was he was in the wrong theatre. <laughs> From 1972, with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous, Barry Humphreys never touched alcohol again. He regularly attended AA meetings all over the world, helping other addicts. His career flourished. Together, Beresford and Humphreys created The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, and Barry McKenzie holds his own. Oh, I hope all the trips turn to you. Kick it under down flat to the grass. On a trip to Western Australia, Barry Humphreys befriended country music legend Slim Dusty, the pair spontaneously performing together on a cattle truck. Another famous singer friend, Elton John, sent this tribute. Barry Humphreys was one of the funniest people in the world, but you all know that. But he's also one of the kindest and most generous person to me. Media magnate Rupert Murdoch shared how Barry's friendship still resides deeply in his heart. Barry, you are still here. Your wit still amuses. Your personal courage still resonates. Your creativity still inspires. Your intellect is still a beacon. You are a man of many parts and a part of many lives. The sales of the Sydney Opera House will be lit up tonight in honour of Barry Humphreys, who died in April at the age of 89. Good night, Possum. <laughs> Rachel Hayter with that tribute. And Possums, that's all we've got time for this week on PM. PM's producer is Mike Edwards. Technical production by Lena Elsardi and Dave Sargent. I'm David Lipson. The PM team will, with me will be back on Monday evening. And do join Madeline Jenner on radio tomorrow morning for This Week. The podcast is also available on the ABC Listen app. Have a great weekend. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Are you an AI boomer or doomer? Do you think artificial intelligence will make the world a better place? Or are you worried it could destroy our way of life? Today, Professor Toby Walsh, the Chief Scientist at UNSW's AI Institute, on the recent fight over AI in Silicon Valley and the latest innovations we need to know about. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.